Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 2, 1 through 14. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went out to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with the child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Natalie. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in your word in Isaiah 57, peace, peace to the far and to the near, that you will heal us. But you also remind us that the wicked are like the tossing sea that cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt, and there is no peace for them. So God, we pray this morning for your perfect peace upon each one of us here, a peace that passes all understanding found only in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The ruler of the world is now born. The ruler of the world is now born, and as much as you might think that that is a scriptural reference to Jesus. These words were, in fact, spoken by a Roman astrologer at the birth of Caesar Augustus. After the murder of his uncle, Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus established himself as Julius's successor after a series of five bloody civil wars, after which he inaugurated a, a Pax Romana, or Roman peace across the empire in 27 BC. And that peace would go on for approximately 200 years, perhaps the longest period of peace in human history. In gratitude for Augustus's rule and its effect, 
the Senate deified him. They made him a god shortly after his death. But even at his birth, legends abounded as to the significance and exceptionalism of Caesar Augustus. One widely accepted legend went so far as to assert that Caesar Augustus's birth had divine origin, where a snake, or where a god, I should say, in the form of a snake visited his mother after a midnight service at the temple of Apollo. But just as with the snake in the Garden of Eden who introduced falsehood, so too did this snake god who purportedly visited Caesar's mother father a false god who would go on to introduce a false peace. For Roman peace proved far from peaceful. You see, Caesar Augustus never ultimately brought peace. Not true peace anyway. Peace, in fact, came and continues to come from one of Caesar's subjects, an obscure refugee, an indistinct non-citizen born in an equally obscure and indistinct corner of the empire. It's no accident that our narrative in Luke 2 begins with Caesar Augustus, a false god who brought false peace. Luke mentions him right at the beginning of verse 1. And we could chalk that up to a mere nod at historical background, but perhaps God has something more in mind at the mention of Caesar. You see, if anybody had any compunction to be somebody in that time and place, they would have their eyes set upon Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the world who could at will issue a decree that we would be obligated to obey. But all the while, God unfolds his own plan, for unto us, it says, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given, not necessarily a child of noble birth or significance as the world would count significance, but a humble child born in humble means. Brothers and sisters, if, if we walk by sight, it would be easy to think that Caesar Augustus is God's plan for the world, that our nation in all its might is God's plan for the world. They're not. Caesar enters our narrative as a false God who brought false peace. If we have our eyes set on the pomp and the circumstance, the glitz and the glitter of the world, whether it be the Roman world or our world, with all of its kitschy, sentimental, overly commercialized winter wonderland that we live in, to face unafraid the plans that we've made, then we're going to miss the true meaning of Christmas. God's salvation did not come from Caesar's throne in Rome, but from a feed trough for animals in Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Judea, a place that Caesar perhaps had no idea existed. While the world glorified Caesar, a false god who brought false peace, God glorified himself by sending us true peace in the provision of his son. And if we want any part in that peace, we cannot look to 
or glorify Caesar. We cannot look to or glorify the might of our own nation. We must look to, we must glorify God himself. Which brings us to the main idea of our text. God must be glorified for peace to prevail. God must be glorified for peace to prevail. In those days, it said, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. He he made a decree. He ordered a census so that taxes could be collected from his conquered subjects. And all went to be registered, it says, each to his own town. Joseph, being from the house and lineage of David, specifically from the town of Bethlehem, in obedience to Caesar's orders took his betrothed Mary from their home in Nazareth to Bethlehem to be registered, some 90 miles away. And while in Bethlehem, it came time for Mary to give birth. It says she wrapped her firstborn son in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. No room for Jesus. It goes on to say, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Can you imagine the scene? It's dark. It's, it's unlike anything we've probably experienced in a long while with all of our, our light pollution that we have. I would just long to see more than a two, two or three stars in the sky. Dark as dark can be. Quiet, perhaps, as quiet could be, except for the bleeding of the sheep reminiscent of the sacrifices made in Jerusalem. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. True light pollution, right? They were filled with fear. The angel said to them, fear not, for for behold, I bring you good news of, of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now I want to spend our time this morning contemplating the angel's declaration in verse 14. Christ coming. Emmanuel, God with us, offers two necessities that we often find missing in our own reality. Number one, glory to God, and number two, peace on earth. As we look to Ukraine, as we look to Israel, as we look to the growing threat in China, as we look to the violence amid elections in Congo this week, as we look to a myriad of other issues in our own context, these two necessities still lack. And there's a reason we call them necessities, because they're necessary. Necessary for God's glory and for our ultimate survival. So let's look at these in turn. First, let's look at the beginning of verse 14 and see glory to God. The multitude of the heavenly host declared glory to God in the highest. They offer God the praise due his name. 
Now, up until this precise moment in history, God's glory had been declared. Creation declared it. David sings in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Prophets, priests, and even kings declared it. Even pagans at times saw aspects of his glory praising him. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 praised, extolled, and honored or glorified the king of heaven, finally realizing his own weakness and God's own strength. But this precise moment in history where an angel of the Lord appeared to some shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night, proved to be the apex of God's glory in human history up until this point. Perhaps no higher degree of glory existed prior to this moment, at least not on earth. At the coming of Jesus, God's own son, God is with us. What we lost in the Garden of Eden begins to be restored. Therefore, we can declare with the angels, glory to God in the highest heaven. Now, I had said earlier that this verse offers two necessities that we often find missing in our own reality. The first being glory to God. Do we give glory to God as we should? Do we declare it? Do we shout it from the highest mountain, uh, even to a group of gruff working men, as the multitude of the heavenly host did for these shepherds here? Do we bring good news of great joy for all people? Or do we decide for others whether they would want this or not? Friends, we cannot help but talk about what we love. For instance, have you ever met a vegan evangelist? Have you ever met a Jordan Peterson evangelist? Have you ever met a running evangelist? Or or an evangelist of any number of life-changing product? These evangelists have good news for you. They extol the virtues of these lifestyles, these people, and these products. Their lives have been improved by these sorts of things, and they want to improve our lives with them, whether we want to be improved or not. And we listen politely because we're probably not jerks. We might think they're a little crazy about something maybe we could care less about, or Perhaps we do care about them, but maybe not to the level that they do, but we hear them out, don't we? What about us? What about us? What do we love? What can't we help but talk about, even if others think we're a little crazy? What do we extol as essential? I'm not talking about where we spend a few hours a week. I'm not talking about our church attendance. I'm talking about declaring the glory of God at the coming of his son to save us from our sins. Does that capture us? Friends, heaven offers praise at the coming of the Savior. They deliver good news. We should too. We should too. We should with the angels declare the glory of God. One necessity that we often find missing 
in our own reality. All humanity, no matter race, nationality, or creed, worships. All humanity worships. The question is, is what we worship worthy of worship? Is what we worship worthy of worship? At one point in his life, Caesar Augustus visited the shrine of Alexander the Great in Egypt. While there, he had Alexander the Great's mummy, had his corpse removed from its sarcophagus so that he could look upon him, gazing upon the one who had conquered the world. He even went so far as to venerate his corpse by placing a golden diadem upon Alexander the Great's head and flowers upon his body. When asked whether he wanted to see anyone else in the Ptolemaic dynasty, that's Alexander's successors who went on to rule Egypt, he replied to them, I came to see a king, not a row of corpses. He venerated him, worshipful. Cannot help but wonder that if Caesar Augustus had lived long enough, would he have done the same for Jesus Christ? Would he have done the same if he would have seen Jesus' death and resurrection? Would he have shown him that same veneration? Would he come to see the King of Kings? Or would he be counted among those with whom the Apostle Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 1? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes on to say, God chose what is low and despised in the world. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do we boast? Do we glory in the Lord? Do we with the angels lift high his name? Should we choose not to This second necessity that I had spoke of will never be a reality for us. Unless we give glory to God, we will never have peace on earth, which leads us to the second part of verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, it says, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between those addressed in verse 10 with those addressed in verse 14. The angel declared in verse 10 that he brought good news of great joy for whom? All people. All people. In other words, the coming of Christ has a universal or general benefit for all humanity. No one by birth, nationality, language, or prior creed or behavior has been excluded. No matter what you have done, no matter where you are from, God offers good news. He offers the gospel, and we'll get to what that means in a moment. He offers this to all. And so the coming of Christ has a universal or general benefit for all humanity, but more importantly, it has a specific or special benefit for a particular group 
of people here in verse 14. It says, those with whom he is pleased. Which begs the question, who are these people? And and how can I be one of them? Because the older I get, the more I crave this one necessity, peace, peace. As a young man, I I craved excitement, adventure, and novelty. And those things have their place. But none of those proved satisfactory to satiate the deep longing, the ravenous hunger of my soul. Do not mistake what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the desire for peace and quiet, though I do like peace and quiet, probably more than most people. There's almost nothing I like more than a hammock, a good cup of coffee, and a great book in the summer, and a hammock, a great cup of coffee, and a good book in the winter. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about peace and quiet. I'm talking about something deeper than that, something non-circumstantial. At the coming of Christ or Messiah or anointed one, God brings a peace that passes all understanding, a peace counter to typical experience, whether you have peace and quiet or not. It's an internal peace. It's a peace of the soul. It's a tranquil heart. It's a quiet mind that no matter what circumstance God has you in, whether you were born in a stable or a palace, whether being carried in a litter like Caesar or walking the dusty roads like Jesus, you have peace independent of circumstance. Now, before we get to the question of who can have this peace, let's make doubly sure we know what the Bible means by peace. I can think of no better place than Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In other words, the person who has peace has two things. Number one, he has a mind focused on God. Number two, he has a complete trust in God. I want you to notice that one leads to the other. I can't truly trust God if I don't focus on God. Focus means I'm looking to God. I'm spending time with God. I'm gazing upon God's glory in his word and among his people. I should want to know God as well as or better than I know a closest friend or loved one. As the bride in Song of Songs focuses on her beloved, so too does the Christian focus on God. Let me give you a an example of what I mean. If you've ever had the chance of doing anything physical with me, you'll know that I have terrible balance. Terrible balance. One time a friend had me come over and try out his slack line. Now, for those who don't know, a slack line is a rope tied between two trees a few feet off the ground. Friends, I could not even get onto that rope without doing some serious damage to myself or anyone nearby. But had I ever successfully summited that little rope, 
I'm told that one essential basic tip for walking a slack line or a tightrope is to focus intently on a single point ahead of you. Friends, according to Scripture, God is that single point of focus ahead of us. The only thing that truly balances us on this tightrope walk of life. He's the only one who can hold us in perfect peace. Without him, without God, we wobble back and forth, throwing out our backs and wrenching our necks, falling, getting back up, up again, looking and feeling utterly ridiculous because we have no focus on the one thing that will successfully and peacefully lead us across. So that's what the Bible means by peace. It's a focus on God. It's a trust, complete trust in God, which still begs the question, how can I be one of these people? How can I be one to whom God offers peace? How can I know that I'm one of those with whom God is well pleased? If that's who receives peace, I want to be counted among them. Well, peace with God, according to Romans 5.1, comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one born here in Luke 2, for all of those who have been justified or be, been made right with God by faith in Jesus. Jesus delivered his people from their trespasses. That's the good news. That's the gospel that I had mentioned earlier, that all of those things that we have done wrong, all of those things that have caused us a myriad of anxieties or lack of peace can be made right. And he did this by the blood of his cross and raised his people up before the Father, justified, made right with God. And so, in a sense, the question I asked is sort of a trick question. Who are those with whom God is well pleased? Only those who see their utter bankruptcy. Only those covered by Jesus. For Jesus alone is the one whom God is truly well pleased. God's favor rests on Jesus alone. And only those who claim him as their Savior and Lord know his good favor. They have the eternal peace that he offers. And friends, that peace is not just something that he offers to us one day in eternity. He offers that peace now. He offers that peace now. If we have anxiety about brokenness, whether it's our brokenness or another's, if we have anxiety about sinfulness, whether it's our sinfulness or another's, about sickness or loneliness or corruptness, if we lack peace, if we move from one thing in this life to the next, always with that hope, that as soon as we finish this, then we'll have peace. God's word says to us, and I'm paraphrasing, if you have anxiety, present it to God in prayer. And he takes that from you, and he gives you peace instead, Philippians 4. What a deal. We give God our anxiety. He gives us 
peace instead. Now, there's a sense in which this reality is already here. It's already here, but not yet perfectly, meaning that we will struggle with this until the day that God calls us home. We will lack peace. We will be worried about things that will matter little in eternity. But by God's grace, we can grow in this peace day by day. John Newton, the hymn writer of Amazing Grace, once said this, and I'm pretty sure I heard this from Pastor Josh originally, uh, or somewhere, but he said this, John Newton said, I'm not what I ought to be, I'm not what I want to be, I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I'm not what I used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, it's going to be okay. He's making all things right. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. On the day of his death, Caesar Augustus, summoning a group of his friends, hoping to cast his cares upon them, knowing death was imminent, asked them, have I played my part in the farce of life, creditably enough. Have I played my part in the farce of life, creditably enough? Later that day, he died. And soon after, the Roman Senate deified him as a god to be worshipped. Perhaps we remember him every August, for he died in that month subsequently named for him. At least I remember him in August, because I like history. The deified emperor who had brought peace, relatively speaking, to much of the known world, the emperor who ruled during the birth of Christ, went to his grave believing life to be a farce, an empty or patently ridiculous event, wondering if he played his part creditably enough. What a contrast we find in Caesar's words with the final words of Jesus Christ. What the angels announced at his birth, Jesus realized at his death. He glorified God in his death and resurrection, bringing peace to his people. He doesn't query whether he's played his part. And he certainly does not believe life to be farcical. Instead, he declares, it is finished. Absolute certitude, absolute pur purpose. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20. He made peace by the blood of his cross to reconcile all things to himself, as Josh so poignantly preached last Christmas. Jesus does not have to wonder as the false god Caesar wondered. He brought glory to God so that peace might prevail. Friends, God must be glorified for peace to prevail. God must be glorified for peace to prevail. 
As Jesus approached Jerusalem on his journey to the cross, he said this. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Permit me to say that again. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Friends, there will come a day when this chance for peace will pass us by as surely as it passed by those in Jerusalem in that day who rejected him. Those necessities that I had spoken of will be hidden from our eyes. We will not know God's glory. We will never experience God's peace. For unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. We'll never see the glory of God. We'll never experience the peace of God. We will face afraid the plans that we've made. If those plans do not involve God and his son who reconciles us by the blood of his cross, but by his grace, we can say with the angels at the coming of our Lord, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. 